Glory be to God. Well, it's good to be back with you again this Sunday. It's good to be in church. I want to uh, say this quickly, uh, and that is thank you. Thank you for being here this morning. I don't know if you realize this. We, we pay attention to this in, as uh, I, pay, I pay attention to this as a pastor, and we in our, in our leadership pay attention to the trends and things that happen uh, year over year in our church. So we've come to learn and understand that in July and in August, people are usually out and about. And so I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a little less people in here than normal on Sunday for the last couple weeks, and and that's part of summertime. But I want to congratulate you for being faithful to come to church this morning. Amen. Give yourself a hand. Hallelujah. Amen. Now it's it's I, I, I say that in with a with a tone of silliness, but also with a tone of seriousness, because I'm here to tell you that whatever you prioritize in the kingdom of God is 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 what ends up manifesting for you in your life. When you prioritize the things of God, the things of God begin to work in your life and make changes and cause you to grow. And you know, um, it just blesses me to see people here this morning. I know there's a lot of other places you could have gone. Uh, there's a lot of lakes and beaches and things you could be at this morning, but you're here. So thank you for being with us today. We're going to continue today in our series on the book of James. Uh, as we do that, we've before we do that, we've been taking time at the beginning of each sermon to talk about our core values as a church. There are five of them that we value dearly here and that we build our culture around as a ministry. And um, we've been going through them. We're actually going through our second time now through these five. Today we're looking at number three for the second time if you haven't been with us. And that core value number three is God's family. We value God's family. Well, let me give all five of them to you real quick. We value God's word. We value God's presence, we value God's family, we value God's culture, and we value God's character. Those are the five things that we value at our church. And today we're shining the spotlight on God's family. That means we value the church, meaning God's global family. How many of you know Hope Church isn't the only church on planet Earth, right? We'd be probably a little bigger if we were, but that's all right. But um, I'm here to tell you that there's a big church and there's a lot of Christians around this world that are your family. Many of them you don't know, but how many of you have ever had this experience where you meet a believer in another country or another city or another place and you find, y'all find out that the other one is a believer and it's like instant kinship. It's just instant. You're like, oh God, you're a Christian too? Praise God, we could be friends. See, we value God's global family. There's a big, big church out there. We, second thing we value is our church, our local family. We're a local expression of the family of God in the earth. And then the third thing is that we value evangelism. What does that mean? Those who are becoming part of God's family. There's a whole community around us that sometimes we forget about that are not yet part of God's family, people that don't know Jesus, people that haven't received the abundance of life in Christ. There's folks that have yet to become a new creation in Christ Jesus, and we value them too. Because we believe that they're, that we believe that when they hear the message, that their hearts will swell up with joy and they'll say, what must I do to be saved? Amen. Are y'all, are y'all awake this morning? Hallelujah. We can get excited about evangelism, can't we? 
telling the good news. You may not be a preacher that preaches behind a pulpit every Sunday morning, but I'll tell you what, you're a preacher of the gospel in your office. You're a preacher of the gospel in your family, amongst your friends. When you go out to dinner, you are preaching the gospel to the people around you by the way that you live. Amen. I believe that we have a mandate from God to be serious about evangelizing our world and our community especially. Amen? So those are the things we value. So excited to just remind us of that all summer long. Just go through each of these five points as a reminder. Hallelujah. Um, We're going to continue in our James series, by the way. I think I already mentioned that, but I'll say it again. Uh, I want to review a couple things for you this morning as we do that, and then we'll pray and make our confession of faith and jump into it. But just real quickly, let me review some of the stuff that we covered last week. How many of you were were here for last week? Let me see the showing of hands of those who were here. How many of you were challenged this week to control your mouth? Amen. Yes. (laughs) I got some good text messages and emails and feedback this week. I tell you what, we we got a job to do to watch our mouth. Amen. Watch your mouth. Glory to God. Um, But let me just review a couple things real quickly from that. Um, We asked the question, what if it were possible to completely control and direct the course and the trajectory of your life? And we said that's not a rhetorical question. It actually is possible to control the destination of your life. James tells us that our tongue is like the rudder of a ship and it steers and directs the way that our whole body, our whole life goes. According to God, a significant measurement of your maturity is your ability to exercise self-control when you speak. Now, I know that that hits all of us hard. Nobody is exempt from that. That's That's a strong statement and a strong thought, but it's important nonetheless. If we have no control over what comes out of our mouths, this is what we said last week, if we have no control over what comes out of our mouths, we're not yet mature in God. So I'm even know we got some work to do. How many of you want to grow up? I do. Amen. I, I said that one time I was preaching in a church, and there was this girl on the front row who was saying, she was one of those that said amen to everything. I, I love when people say amen when I'm preaching, but then there's sometimes when people just say, you're like, yeah, I was tying my shoes yesterday. You're like, great, glory to God, brother, amen. So, so this girl was amening literally everything that I was saying, and I was asking the question, how many of you want to stay immature? I was like, how many of you want to be immature? She's like, yeah, glory, amen, and then she realized what she was saying amen to. If we have no control over what comes out of our mouths, we're not yet mature. Our words are what is providing direction And there's not a place in our lives that has not been influenced by our words. Not one part of your life has been unaffected by your words. We said that there were three kinds of words to eliminate from James. Three kinds of words to eliminate from our vocabulary. Words that are complaining, words that are crushing, and words that are careless. Complaining, crushing, and careless. Get that out of your vocabulary and watch what God does. Amen. Let's go ahead and make our confession of faith today. How many of you are excited to receive something new from the Lord today? I want to get something that I've never gotten before. I want to, I want to see something in a, in a way that I've never seen it before. Amen. Let's make this confession of faith out loud together. Say, thank you, Father, that today 
The eyes of my heart see you. The ears of my heart hear you. My heart and mind perceive and understand your word and your... Y'all finish it. Say that one part again. Today. Amen. Hallelujah. We're growing in the things of God. My wife and I went to the Garth Brooks concert on Friday night down in Charlotte. And Garth kept telling everybody to finish his songs for him. We'd be out, he'd be, everybody'd be singing his song and he'd go, you finish it. So I just wanted to be like Garth Brooks there for a second. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for yet another opportunity to come before your word and receive priceless wisdom to receive and lay hold of the truth of your word. For Jesus, you said that we would know the truth and the truth would make us free. So I pray right now in Jesus' name that as we receive the truth of your word, that we are made free because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Thank you this morning, Lord, that your word is setting us free. We receive it with gladness in Jesus' name and let everybody shout amen. Amen. Come on, you can do better than that. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, let's turn to James 3. If you haven't already done that, we're covering the second half of the third chapter of James. I am so enjoying this series. And I don't know, I don't want to speak for all of us, but I'm really having a good time in this series on James. And it's one of the, it's, when we first planned it out, it was like, I was kind of going back and forth in my mind on how much time to take for it. Because typically when I preach a series, I try to do it inside of about four or five weeks, you know, fit it in. And that way we don't get stuck on one thing and bored with it, you know, do three, four weeks, maybe five weeks and then move on to something else. But I really felt compelled by the Spirit of God to take the whole summer and just take our time plodding through James. And what's amazing about that, and what's amazing about teaching this way, is that it, it gives us a chance to digest and lay hold of the meat of God's Word. My dad would say this all the time when, when I was young, and when I was coming up, I would hear him preach, and he would say, there's two ways to study the Word. There, it, you, you can do it like a, like a water skier or a deep-sea diver. Both of them are having fun on the water. One of them's having fun going real fast, skimming across the top. And the other one's having fun taking its time, taking their time and going down deep. And, and the beautiful thing is both of them experience things that you only get by, you know, you only experience the rush of water skiing by water skiing. And you only get to see the beautiful colors and the coral and the fish and all the amazing things when you take time to dive deep. So what I love about this series is that we're taking time to dive deep a little bit. And I believe that it's impacting our church in a powerful way. Do you agree? Isn't it wonderful? So we're going we're gonna to jump off from the second half, or I should say the, the, the last third of chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And we just got done, of course, getting lambasted by James about controlling our tongue. And now he is switching gears for the remainder of this chapter. And he's actually, if you look at it in the context of the whole book, he's turning a corner uh, in, in what he's discussing for the whole book. So what he starts now is going to carry into chapter 4 and even into 5. So James is switching gears for the remainder of this chapter and actually for the remainder of the book. And he begins to speak to us about wisdom by contrasting 
the difference between earthly and heavenly wisdom. How many of you remember what the theme of James is? We established this right up front at the beginning. The theme of James, maturity through divine wisdom and through authentic faith. Maturity through divine wisdom and authentic faith. By the way, how many of you are still keeping up with your daily assignment to read a chapter? Amen. I see a couple hands. Good job. Well done. Well done. I don't know if Grant's hand was going up because he was adjusting the camera or if he's been reading his Bible every day, but, but here we are. Don't forget the assignment, amen? But James is start to, starting to talk to us about contrasting the difference between earthly and heavenly wisdom. This concept of earthly and heavenly wisdom is not unique to the book of James. Rather, it's consistent throughout all of Scripture. We see examples, many examples of this contrast throughout the Word. Take, for example, Solomon's writing through all of Proverbs. In fact, the, the large bulk of Proverbs is a compare and contrast. Stuff like Proverbs 14, 16 says, A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. I mean, if you've read Proverbs before and you've seen that, it's like, a, it's like an either or. Like a wise person does this, but the idiot does this, and this is what happens. There's this contrast between God's wisdom and, and, and the wisdom of this world. Proverbs 14, 12 says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of its death. God says to, God's, what does God say to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy? He says, this day have I set before you life and death. Choose life that you and your descendants may live. God is, God is from the very beginning of time presenting humanity with two options, your way or my way. And I'm here to tell you that the sooner that we get on board with doing it God's way, the sooner things start to work in our lives. It's amazing that we even have to remind ourselves of this as Christians, but we do. The sooner you get on board with saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Wasn't it Jesus who said that? Wasn't it the king of kings himself who in the garden of Gethsemane, in his greatest moment of trial, in his greatest moment of temptation, when all he wanted to do in his flesh and mind was to quit, yet he said to his God, yet, or excuse me, yet he said to his father, not my will, but thy will be done. See, that's a perfect example of the contrast that James is painting for us. Solomon and other authors write in this way to convince us of the absolute and constant difference between the world's way of doing things and God's way of doing things. Isaiah reminds us of this. I mean, it's, it's everywhere in Scripture. Isaiah reminds us of, of this in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. You, you know this Scripture. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. There's a way that seems right to a man, but that's just man's thoughts. Can you lay hold of God's thoughts and begin to change some things in this world around you? I believe we can. All throughout Scripture, God's saying to his people, this is my way of doing things versus your way of doing things. When you get over into the New Testament, authors like Paul and James begin to do 
they, they begin to tackle the subject, but they tackle it slightly differently. Rather than just present us with, this is God's way, this is man's way, this is God's way, this is man's way. What Paul and James and other New Testament authors begin to do is that they begin to dive deeper into their approach and understanding of the wisdom of God, and they look at it, they look at God's wisdom through the lens of us being new creations in Christ. That no longer is God's wisdom this this unattainable thing out here, but now God's wisdom has taken up residence inside of us because the spirit of the living God is living inside of us. And now we actually have an opportunity to walk in wisdom instead of just try to grasp for it. Is this making sense to you? We now, because of the spirit of God living in us, have unprecedented access to the wisdom of God via his spirit. Do you realize you have more access to the wisdom of God than Solomon? Are you wiser than Solomon? I don't know. Have you been taking advantage of the wisdom that God put on the inside of your heart? I'm not suggesting that you deserve to write a book of the Bible by any means. (laughs) King Solomon was the greatest king that ever lived in Israel's history. Arguably the greatest king that ever lived. He was the wisest man alive. But the beautiful thing is that every single Christian, every single new believer that's part of this new covenant has an edge on even Solomon. Because Solomon, as great as his wisdom was, as profound as the the book of Proverbs and, and even Ecclesiastes that he wrote, and I believe uh, Solomon even wrote a few of the Psalms. As profound as that was, and as much as it was God speaking through him and breathing through him to write Scripture, we, I'm not trying to diminish Solomon's importance by any means, so please don't hear that. But the beautiful thing is that when you look at yourself versus anybody in the Old Testament, you have an edge. You have an advantage over them. Why? Because the God that they worshiped lived in a temple that they had to visit. The God that we worship is the same God, but he lives in us now. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. God doesn't live in a temple made with hands anymore. He lives in the temple of our hearts. That's why Paul says, don't you know? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that Christ himself is living on the inside. Solomon didn't have Christ Jesus living on the inside of him, but you do. So the question is, are you accessing the wisdom that's been given freely to you and placed on the inside of you? As Paul begins to unfold this idea and as James begins to unfold this idea, they do it through the lens of, we're not out here chasing God's wisdom anymore. His wisdom lives in us. The revelation of God's wisdom gets progressively deeper as you advance through Scripture to the degree that when we arrive at our passage in James, we see him taking a very surgical approach to unpacking God's wisdom. I want to I quote to you. Would you put it up on the screen there, uh, Tim? Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. This is Paul talking. Just to give you an example of what I'm saying, and I'm, I'm, just so you know, I'm kind of building a case here before we get into the, the verses that we're going to cover in James. But look at what Paul says in Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. 
What happens when I get the spirit of wisdom working in me? Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you might know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Glory to God. What's living on you is so much bigger than you. Let me say it again. What's living on the inside of you, the person living on the inside of you is so much bigger than you. And he's got so much more wisdom than you do. And you can access his wisdom any time of day or night at 3 a.m. in the morning when you wake up panicking because you don't know how you're going to work it all out and life just seems to be closing in on you and the room's getting smaller and you're getting more panicked and you're feeling like, I don't know how I'm going to make it. You can tap into the wisdom of God on the inside of you. Just as, just as fast and easy and simple as opening your heart to the Lord. God, speak to me. Lord, grant unto me the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Let the eyes of my understanding be enlightened. Why do you think we, we make this confession of faith that we make every single week? Give me eyes that see you and ears that hear you and a heart that perceives and understands. What is that? We're declaring by faith what this scripture has said to us. Now we come over into James and James is going to just take us even another layer deeper. And he's going to get surgical. Let's read James 3, 13 through 18. I'm reading from the New King James, and I'm going to quote also a few things from the New Living Translation. Y'all doing all right this morning? We doing okay so far? All right, here we go. Who is wise and understanding among you? Verse 13. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly and sensual and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable and then gentle and willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you recall that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed be the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do you suppose that James, when he wrote that last phrase, was thinking back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I wonder. I like how James begins in verse 13. I'm going to go verse by verse. There's five of them here. And I like how he begins this thought as he turns this corner into wisdom. Is there anyone among you who's got wisdom? Look at on screen. Is there any wise and understanding among you? In other words, anybody around here got any wisdom? Prove it. I think that James was from Missouri. Y'all re remember that Missouri is called the show me state? I'm pretty sure that's what their license plates say. Uh, Sean and I grew up with a, with a buddy, of a, a friend of ours named Chad, uh, who grew up in Nebraska, which is right next to Missouri. And he said growing up, they used to refer to Missouri as misery. And so I guess it's just a lot of flat cornfields. But um, I think James was maybe from Missouri because he's always wanting everybody to prove it. He's always wanting everybody to, okay, you say you believe, you got faith, show me. 
do some works. Do, show me that you got faith. Is there anybody among you that's wise? Anybody that's smart? Okay, prove it. So how do we prove that we're wise? Is it by telling everybody that we're really wise? Oh, I say, I'm smart. Yeah, I'm pretty smart. Who's got the wisdom of the wisdom of God in two thumbs? This guy. That's not how we communicate that we have wisdom. How do we communicate that we have wisdom? Let me read this verse in the New Living Translation. It says, if you are wise and understands God's, understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with humility that comes from wisdom. How do you demonstrate that you're operating in the wisdom of God? Let his wisdom lead you in living a life of honor. Huh. An honorable life. You know what's so cool about honor and why I think that James, you know, kind of highlights this idea for a second for us is honor, honor, never, honor takes you out of the driver's seat. Amen. Honor, honor takes you out of the spotlight in your own life. You can't honor and be in pride at the same time. Let me just tell you that right now. It's impossible. Amen. Honor comes through humility. And James starts this whole conversation about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of this world by saying, if you know how to walk in the wisdom of God, you'll know that you're doing it by, living, by the fact that you're living an honorable life. And you're doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Humility is the fruit of God's wisdom in your life. Wow, what a thought. I thought that spiritual gifts were the fruit of the maturity of the wisdom of God in my life. I thought being able to do really awesome things, you know, for God uh, and do great ministry and have awesome miracles and power was the fruit of maturity. No, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit being in your life. Those are the gifts of God's Spirit on you. How do I know that His wisdom's working in me? I'm living an honorable life. It's always, can I say this to you? It's always the wisdom of God to be humble. Always. You remember in chapter 1, James says a couple of things that allude to this. He says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives liberally without reproach. And then he goes on to say every good in verse 17, I believe it is, every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every good thing comes from God, and including wisdom. And in order to operate in wisdom, you're going to have to turn loose of your pride. Touch your neighbor, say, get humble. Get humble. Get humble. Amen. So let's keep going. Verse 14 says, if you have bitter envy, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Ay, ay, ay. Oh my gosh. When I started to unpack the Greek words in this verse, my hair just went back like this. I'm telling you what, kind of like it looks right now. Just push back. <laughs> Let's define some Greek words here because this is, this is actually, to me, 
the, the, the verse that this whole passage, this is like the fulcrum. This is the, this is the whole point of this whole passage is, is nestled in this verse right here. He says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. A couple of words to define from the Greek. The first one is the word envy. And it's the word zealos in Greek, zealos. And it's the word that we get zealot from, or zealous. Not surprising, it's a very common word. Some of these Greek words, you read them, and it's like reading the ingredients on the back of the shampoo bottle. And then sometimes you read them, and you're like, oh, yeah, I see that. We get an English word from that, yeah. This is one of those easy ones. It means to be stirred up with something, something, and the root of this word, zeo, in the Greek, means to be boiling So when James is talking to us here, he's saying that if you have bitter boiling going on in your heart, this word describes passion on behalf of something. This word zealous is very interesting, and it's actually used all throughout the New Testament. But, what, but it's interesting because sometimes it's used in a positive light, and sometimes it's used in a negative light. Sometimes this word zealous is used to describe somebody whose passion for God is strong and it's used in a positive context. And then sometimes it's used in a negative context like it is here where it's describing someone whose passion for themselves is really strong. You can be a zealot for Jesus or you can be a zealot for Josh Thurman when I'm looking in the mirror. Hey man, you got it together. You are awesome. Nothing you say or do is ever wrong nor should be questioned. Nobody actually says that, but a lot of people believe it. (laughs) I love that James adds the word bitter to this. And and it's right, by the way, that it's translated as envy because uh, oftentimes the way that zeal, when when zeal in a selfish context manifests in our life, it usually manifests through envy and jealousy. And James, I love that he adds the word bitter to it. And, And why that's important is because I believe that it describes how it feels to have this kind of envy in your heart. And how it feels to be around somebody that has this kind of envy in their heart. You ever been around somebody who's bitter towards the world? Pride and zeal will make you a bitter person. In fact, this kind of self-zealousness will make, you know what it will make you? Cynical. Coming for you this morning. I told you all at the beginning of this series there was going to be some challenging moments, okay? I mean, walking, walking, allowing bitterness and and allowing yourself to be eaten up with this kind of consuming zeal for yourself, for your own self-preservation, for your own self-advancement, when the lens is turned on you and everything in your life is about you, Bitterness comes in and creeps in very easily. Offense comes in and creeps in very easily. And what happens as a result of that is that the longer that you live with that and the longer you allow bitterness to take hold in your heart, the more cynical you become as a person. And the problem with that that you don't realize is that it hinders your faith. 
Because ask a cynical person to trust. To ask a cynical person to trust is to ask them to do something that they forgot how to do. Because they stopped trusting people a long time ago, so it's no wonder they can't trust God. It's quiet in here. When you become a bitter person, it's hard for you to walk in faith. Your mode of life is not to trust anyone, so it becomes very hard to trust in God as well. The second word that jumps out in this verse to me is the word self-seeking. It's two words in the English. It's one word in the Greek. It's the word eretheia. And this word is translated five times in the New Testament. Five times. This word blew me away. It's translated five times in the New Testament as strife and twice in the New Testament as contention or contentious. So seven times total. Sometimes it's used as strife. Sometimes it's used here as contentious or in the New King James, self-seeking. Let me tell you one thing that God hates. Self-promotion. Self-promotion. Now, as I say that, let me... Let me introduce a caveat for two seconds, okay? If you're an insurance agent and you're taking out an ad in the local paper to let people know that you're an insurance agent, that's not this kind of self-promotion, okay? I just, I just want, I want to clarify because somebody, you know, I don't want somebody to be thinking like, doggone it, I just paid the deposit on that, that ad in the yellow pages and now here I am self-promoting. No, that's not what God's talking about here. This word self-seeking is, is, is it just, it blew me away. It's translated again five times as strife, two times as contention. It means, this is the literal definition out of Strong's Concordance, it means partisanship. Partisanship. It also means stubborn, difficult, testy, and touchy. (laughs) Just when you thought your habits were safe, you came to church. It means partisanship. What does that mean? It means the, the, the spirit that's divisive, that seeks to divide. And, and it makes you a crabby grouch in the process. Sounds like the devil to me, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm here to tell you, you gotta, you gotta watch. You gotta guard yourself against bitterness, man. You gotta guard yourself against holding on to something that you haven't that you've held on to for way too long. Because look at the collateral damage that gets created in our lives when we hold on to offense, when we hold on to bitterness, and we become people who envy the way other people's lives are, and and, and we just become this grouchy crab who seeks to divide. All of a sudden, all of our opinions are critical ones. All of our comments, all of our feedback are negative. So let's recap for a second. Y'all doing okay? It's a great, encouraging sermon we're preaching this morning. Hallelujah. So good to have you in the house of God. Amen. Glory to God. Praise Jesus. Let's recap for a second. We got two words here from James that paint a beautiful picture of immaturity for us. Bitter envy and zeal and touchy, petty, partisan self-promotion. Let me break it down for us in an easy way we can all understand. Every parent knows what this look like. looks like. Two toddlers fighting over the same thing. I don't know about you, but I have 
three kids, and oftentimes my job is to either be the goalie, and when they're running around and they, somebody comes at me and I kick them back into play, or to be the referee and break up the fight. This idea, this, this, this bitter envy, you know what that is? That's the three-year-old in the candy aisle at the grocery store. Mine! I want it! I want it! Give it to me! Give it to me now! Well, you can't have it. Why not? I want it! Why should we give it to you? Because I want it! That's Sophia. That's my little Sophia. Daddy, I want it. Well, I'm not going to give it to you, right? You've already had three cookies. You're not going to have a fourth one. But I want it. Well, I know that you want it. I want you to keep your teeth intact. Bitter envy, and, bitter envy looks like it's mine. I want it. Self-promotion looks like I'll fight you for it. I want it. It's mine. It belongs to me for no other reason than the fact that I want it, and I'll take you down if you try to get it from me. That's bitter envy and self-seeking. Can I tell you what? This is what the world calls wisdom. Jeez. This is what the world calls wisdom. Oh yeah, go after it. Get it for yourself. It's yours. Cutthroat. Beg, borrow, cheat, steal, lie. Do whatever you have to do to get to the top of the pile and have a hissy fit on the way up. What a model citizen. The world thinks that's wisdom. I, I started to ask myself this question. Why in the world does the world think that that is wisdom? Why? Why does the world think that hissy fits and cutthroat jealousy is wisdom? Why does the world call it wisdom? Because more often than not, this kind of thinking and behavior seems really reasonable. Have you ever met a deeply offended person that didn't have a perfectly good reason for themselves to be deeply offended? Well, you have no idea what they did to me. You have no idea what they said to me. You have no idea how they made me feel. You, I can't even begin to tell you how much trauma my life has experienced because of what that person, what he, what she did to me 10 years ago, five years ago, last Friday, whatever the case may be. Everybody has got a perfectly reasonable excuse for living with unforgiveness and repentance and, and bitter envy. That's why the world thinks it's reasonable. That's why the world calls it wisdom. It's totally reasonable. Somebody cut you off, cut them back. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. What did Jesus say, man? He said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. What am I going to tell you? Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Pray for the person that despitefully uses you. Oh, man, they just made such a mess of your life. Forgive them fast and pray for them. Whew. It's time to let it go. That's why what Gracie was saying this morning when she got up was so profound. I had it in my heart. Gracie's got something to share. Okay, give her the microphone. Yes, sir. Wow. 
She didn't know. We didn't discuss notes before this happened. But no, listen, you got some things you got to let go of. I know he hurt you. I know she hurt you. I know she did something to you that, that left a wound. Get over it. You can't accept and receive healing until you let go and release the bitterness. I can't tell you how many times I have watched and heard of testimonies of people forgive someone and get healed of a disease. Forgive someone, they get a breakthrough in their marriage. Forgive someone, they all of a sudden get this blessing of financial prosperity. This All of a sudden, God has been working on them to release this anger and get rid of it. And boom! Something that feels so disconnected, all of a sudden gets fixed in an immediate instant. It's like they didn't even have to believe for it. It just happened. Time to let go. Look at this in the, in the new living. If you're bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. Don't walk around like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. What is that, boasting? Over here, walking with the world's biggest limp. You okay, buddy? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, ready to run a marathon. Yeah, all's good. <laughs> He keeps going, verse 15, watch this. Verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above. Remember verse 17 of chapter one? Every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father of lights. This stuff doesn't come from him. This kind of thinking, this world's wisdom, quote unquote, doesn't come from above. But it is three things, earthly, sensual, demonic, Earthly, what does that mean? Well, it means it didn't come from God, and it only works here. It only works in this system. It only works in man's corrupted, fallen system. Selfishness, cutthroat activity, that only gets you to the top in man's kingdom. doesn't get you anywhere with God. Humility is the green light for advancement in the things of God. Humility is what gets you to the next level, if you will, in God's kingdom. But cutthroatness, that don't work for you in God's, in God's way of doing things. Number two, it's sensual. What's that mean? That means that it's based on the five senses. Okay, it's not an inappropriate website. It's based on the five senses. If you can't touch it, taste it, feel it, smell it, or see it, then it's not sensual. That's why sometimes it's hard to walk by faith because everything in our world is sensual. It's aimed at grabbing a hold of one of our five senses. But the kingdom of God operates way above and beyond what is sensual. His kingdom is supernatural. Amen? Then the third thing is, this kind of thinking, the third thing is, it's demonic. That means... It's inspired by demons. So many people in church don't even believe demons are real anymore. So many people in church today, they just want a nice three points in a poem kind of sermon, make me feel good about my life and send me home. Don't tell me that there's, there's really angels and really demons and there's really a devil and there's really a spirit world that exists. You know, we're just, we're just taught to be carnal. Yeah, anyways, I can't get off on that. I don't know about you, but this idea hits a little differently when I realize that thinking and living this way is in cooperation with the devil and his crowd and demons. Strife's ugly, man. 
Next time, you, next time you're tempted to get in strife, just remember that by getting in strife, you're cooperating with demons. You are perfectly fulfilling the will of the devil for you by strife. Oh, man. Y'all are going to chase me out of here after this is over. Hallelujah. What is the result of this kind of earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom? Verse 16. I got to hurry up. For where envy and self-seeking exist, is the same two things he's already talked about, confusion and every evil thing are there. What is the first result of this kind of quote-unquote earthly wisdom? Confusion. You want to make sure your marriage is filled with confusion? Just fight all the time. You want to make sure that your business or your job is filled with confusion? Be contentious with everybody around you. And you'll be guaranteed to be confused. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, along with that comes every evil thing. So so I think we can be convinced that the world's wisdom is really not profiting to anybody. Right? How many of you are ready to get happy? All right. You've been beat up long enough. Look at verse 17. What is the wisdom of God? But the wisdom that is from above, here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's, here's James contrasting. This is the wisdom that comes from God. It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Why does James, before we get into these five words, why does James describe it this way? I believe that James outlines God's wisdom this way for two reasons. Number one, so that you'll know it when you see it. And number two, so that you'll appreciate it when you experience it. In other words, this is what wisdom looks like, and this is why wisdom is good. I think that's why James writes it this way. This is what wisdom looks like. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. It's peaceable. And this is why it's good. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. And it's peaceable. Look at what he says. The first quality. I love this. I just love this. The first quality of wisdom that comes from God is that it is pure. It's amazing because he could have jumped into all these other, you know, adjectives to describe it, but he starts with pure. Why? I looked at the word in the Greek. It means true and certain, real, authentic. In other words, God's wisdom is truly actually wisdom. The other stuff that the world calls wisdom It's just a counterfeit. It's just a sloppy, demonic counterfeit. And it gets us nowhere fast. The second thing it says is that the wisdom of God is peaceable. That means it's full of peace. If if the world's wisdom is aimed at is, is partisanship. Remember, that was one of the definitions. If, if the world's wisdom is partisanship and division, 
then the wisdom that is from God is so opposed to that that it's actually the thing that brings peace. The devil's wisdom is seek to tear your marriage apart. God's wisdom is seek to put your marriage back together. The devil's wisdom, the world's wisdom, was seek to fragment your life by tearing it in places. God's wisdom desires to put your life back together and heal it like it was never broken. The word peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom, and it means nothing missing, nothing broken. It means wholeness and completeness. The third thing that he says is that the wisdom of God is gentle. That word means equitable. It means fair and mild. In other words, not harsh. You know, my my challenges sometimes, can I be transparent with you for a second? One of my challenges, especially with my kids, is being harsh. Because I'm one of those people who sees everything in black and white. Yeah, this is right, that's wrong. I said, come here, you didn't, that was wrong. Now, I'm not going to not uphold a standard in my home, but there's a way that you can deliver things, especially to little girls. When you're five times their size. Where's Claire? She's running around taking pictures. I could still kick your butt. I don't know where you are, but I can, I'm bigger and stronger than you. Sometimes I tell my kids, Sophia especially, she'll, I'll be hugging her and she'll be trying to get away. And I'm like, don't you know that I'm stronger than you? <laughs> especially with little girls, though. And I'm learning this even with my wife, even though we've been married for 15 years. We still get at each other's throats sometimes. Nobody's perfect, amen? But I'm learning this all the time. There's a gentle way. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. It's one of my mom's favorite scriptures. She quotes it to me all the time. A soft answer turns away wrath. When you're Italian, you're never too old to be mothered, okay? I'm just going to tell you that right now. It's just the way it goes in our culture. A soft answer turns away wrath. There's a gentleness about the wisdom of God that if we embrace it, you can, you can uphold a standard and say something really hard, but in the way that you say it, you'll evoke a loving response. I have leaders in my life. I'm thinking of one in particular. He's one of the gentlemen that's on our board of advisors. I've known him for, oh gosh, several decades. And I call him, Pastor Don is his name. If he's watching, Pastor Don, I love you so much. He often tunes in to our Sunday services. But I call him the Velvet Hammer. I've told him this many times, so it won't be a surprise to him. I call him the Velvet Hammer. Why? Because he's one of the only people in my life that can correct me, and I want to give him a hug for doing it. Why? Because he's mastered gentleness in the wisdom of God. He's discovered that the wisdom of God is pure, it's, it's, it's peaceable. It brings peace and healing and wholeness. And it's so gentle. The wisdom of God is also will, willing to yield. Look what it says there, willing to yield. You know what I wrote in my notes? You should write this one down. What's more important, being right or being at peace? <laughs> What's more important, you winning the argument about where the towel should go? God, we fight over the dumbest stuff. I'm telling you what. I'm telling you what. I mean, how many married folks have been married for more than 10 years? Let me see your hands. You've been married more than 10 years. When you are dating, it's like, baby, you got a little smear of sauce on your face. It's so cute. Sweetie, I love you so much. Let me get that. You got a little piece of lettuce in your hair. 
You get married, that stuff ain't funny anymore. She, she doesn't put the toothpaste back where you like it, and you're like, I hate you. I'm going to smother you when you're sleeping. I'm sorry that I didn't put the remote back in the basket where it goes. Please don't kill me. Gosh, we fight over the dumbest stuff. And it feel good to laugh about that kind of stuff. We fight over the dumbest stuff. But the question is, would you rather be right or would you rather be at peace? The wisdom of God is knowing when to yield. Because here's the reality that I'm learning. And I'm learning it in my own life as real-time feedback. It's easier for me to walk in love with my spouse. It's easier for me to walk in love with the people around me the longer we stay at peace. If you fight every morning, it's going to be hard to walk in love by dinner. But if you learn how to walk in peace for three days straight, you find yourself with emotions that weren't there before. All of a sudden, she's more attractive. All of a sudden, he's better looking. All of a sudden, gosh, I'm glad I married this woman. Oh, man, I'm so glad that he's my husband. Why? Because you've been at peace long enough to rediscover why you love him in the first place. Would you rather be right or would you rather walk in peace? Full of mercy. You know what I wrote in my, my notes? Quick to forgive. Quick to forgive. Oh, yeah, I blew it, honey. That's all right. I forgive you. Let's move on. Quick. Don't hold a grudge. Don't hold a grudge. Last two things. The wisdom of God comes with good fruits. You, what is good fruit? It's when you like what you're producing. It's when you like what you're producing. Anybody had a fruit tree that you thought was going to give you delicious fruit and it gave you bitter fruit or sour fruit? No, good fruit's defined by the fact that it's enjoyable. See, when the wisdom of God invades your life, things around you become enjoyable. Relationships that used to be bitter become sweet. (laughs) Finally, without partiality and without hypocrisy, that means it's consistent. Consistent. The people that I look at in my life, in my life who have marriages and careers and jobs and ministry that has gone on for a long time, there's a, there's a, there's a consistent thread in people like that. They're consistent. They make a commitment, they stick to it. Now I'm gonna love you forever. Forever and ever. Amen. That's a great song. I can't sing it as low as Randy Travis, but so you make a commitment. I'm going to walk in love with my brother, with my sister forever. I don't care what they do to me. It's without hypocrisy. It's without partiality. Quick to forgive. Let's read this. Let's read this verse this way. Let's read this verse this way. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, true, and certain, real, and authentic. It's actually wisdom. 
And then it's peaceable in that it's full of peace. It brings peace into my life instead of taking things away from my life. It's equitable. It's fair. It's gentle. It's willing to be wrong in order to maintain the peace. It's quick to forgive. It's filled with fruit that's enjoyable. And it is consistent no matter what happens. That's the wisdom of God. Now... When you read that, what does Ephesians chapter 1 begin to sound like? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, grant unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you might know the hope of his calling. You see, wisdom, once you know what it is and you know why it does what it does and you know where it comes from, you can access God's wisdom all the time. Hence, James says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. I want you to do two things this morning. You can stand up to your feet. I hope you got something out of that. I want you to do two things this morning. I want you to make a commitment in your heart that whatever you are holding on to, no matter its depth, no matter of its prolongment, no matter how long it's been there, I want you to commit to letting it go. I don't care if it's 30 years, 40 years, 50 years in your past. He or she did you wrong. They let you down, whatever the case may be. Let it go once and for all. And then the second thing I want you to do is ask for wisdom. We're going to ask for wisdom today because James told us that's what we could do. So I want you to take just a moment and you bow your head and close your eyes. I want you to take this moment and make it personal between you and the Lord.